0: Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Georgia Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Issa. Um This week, we're going to take some time to talk about the many films that have inspired For many more films about (laughs) Batman Over the past decade um, Something that I have noticed In recent times Particularly with New Batman movies Is that Mm. I have noticed that Many modern filmmakers Such as Christopher Nolan Or Todd Phillips Or most recently Matt Reeves Seem to just be interested in Remaking their favourite Iconic (laughs) crime films um, and just trying to insert Batman characters in there. Oftentimes, Batman himself, or Batman's most famous antagonist, the Joker. Yeah. Um, which is why we're going to delve into the, the inspirations behind these many films. Um, firstly, we'll talk about Michael Mann's Heat, which came out in 1995. Yep. It famously, and quite obviously, inspired The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we'll talk about Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy which was mashed into an unholy amalgam uh, which became <laughs> um Todd Phillips' uh, Joker. Yeah. Uh and finally we get David Fincher's Seven and Zodiac which serves as almost blatant inspiration for Matt Reeves' uh The Batman. Mm. Um I am, I am in no way saying that filmmakers should not take inspiration from previous films. I think every film takes inspiration from the director or filmmaker's favorite film yeah for um, sure. it's it's clear and true and i'm not knocking it for being derivative or, or lacking originality the purpose of the this behold podcast is not to knock the batman films yeah the purpose is to make you aware of where its inspirations came from and perhaps get you to delve into these iconic movies which in my just you know personal opinion are better than the batman movies that it inspired mm. uh but that's up to your subjective you know taste yeah uh, yeah. Um, what about you? I I Issa? like uh, which of these five films you think um, surprised you the most?
1: Oh man. Um. I I uh like Heat, Taxi Driver, classics. Watched them a couple of times. Seven is one of my favorite kind of crime films of all time. I think the one that stands out most to me is King of Comedy, uh, for mm. sure because this is my first time watching it. Uh, it yep. is. It was fascinating. Just kind of like seeing that and like eventually doing you know some reading up. About the whole process behind that, like De Niro's kind of inspiration for that. The fact that um uh this is Scorsese's favorite De Niro character, which is kind mm-hmm. of insane, right? Yeah, uh, and and later on as we but as we you know uh kind of cover King of Comedy, I, and I think I do have some thoughts about that because i did re-watch joker after re-watching taxi driver and watching king Mm -hmm. of comedy and just that how that kind of impacted my opinion of joker itself um which already
0: uh, wasn't very good (laughs) yeah
1: yeah there was just something um i mean in in comparison to like in direct kind of comparison like i meant immediately went from watching king of comedy immediately to like right after i went to watch joker um, mm-hmm. Just having that kind of like side by side comparison, or at least like the lingering thoughts and emotions from the King of Comedy going into Joker. Uh, mm-hmm. Wow, I have a lot to say about that. So we'll dive into that when it becomes uh, relevant, uh, for sure. Definitely. But like, man, King of Comedy blew me away. Like, I w- wasn't expecting it. Like, just reading, um, reading the kind of like the synopsis or and and mm. you know what the writer was about. Uh, it's like okay, I can see how this feeds into the inspiration for Phillips's Joker. Um, yep. But oh my god, the movie in and of itself is is brilliant in so many ways, and uh, we'll mm-hmm. get we'll get to that once we jump into that topic.
0: Definitely. Um, my favorite of the five is Heat, which is our first topic. Yeah. So, um, let's delve into that Heat. Obviously, inspired Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. and I think directors often have their cast and crew watch specific films before entering production. You know? yeah. um, there's this famous story on There Will Be Blood where Paul Thomas Anderson screened uh, The Treasure of Sierra Madre because it contained the tone of you know desperate greed that Anderson was striving for in his own film. Mm-hmm. Um, before shooting Rogue One, Gareth Edwards had his team watch a list of films including The Bridge of the River Kwai and 12 O'Clock High to show them the kind of war flick he was aiming for. Yeah. You know, It wasn't just going to be a normal Star Wars, it was a war movie. And just before the production began on the second installment of Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, *The Dark Knight*, he had his production hits and cinematographers watch Michael Mann's *Heat*. Um, yes, there are obvious parallels between the Joker, uh, sorry, between *The Dark Knight* yeah. and *Heat* mm-hmm. in the form of the bank robberies that open both films, yeah. or the concept of a small paramilitary force operating within the limits of a major city. But it wasn't necessarily the specifics of plot and character that interested Nolan in in Michael Mann's film. Mm -hmm. In Nolan's own words, I'm quoting him here, I always felt heat to be a remarkable demonstration of how you can create a vast universe within one city and balance a very large number of characters and their emotional journeys in an effective manner. Um, Yeah, there are visual parallels between... The Dark Knight and Heat, but most remarkably is the tonal parallels, um, how it is shot, how Gotham, how Gotham City for the first time feels like a real city. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, Heat, uh, not only is Heat included uh, in this also, but, you know, obviously, um, Christopher Nolan also pointed out LA Takedown, which Heat is based on <laughs> uh, or adapted from. Um, just a quick insider side note thing. Um, Heat is a remake, if you guys did not know. Um, heat is a remake of Michael Mann's TV pilot called LA Takedown, mm-hmm. which was critically panned and commercially <laughs> panned. Um, basically, everyone hated it from the network executives to Joe Schmo on the couch back in back in the late, early 90s or late 80s, whenever it was. Yeah. Um, Michael Mann decided that it wasn't his fault, um, that it was the actor's fault, mm-hmm. um, which seems very egocentric of him. But then when he assembled a, a cast made up of... Um, you know, Val Kilmer and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, it turned out it really wasn't his fault. It was the actor's fault because <laughs> once he got good actors in the film, suddenly it became an amazing film. All you have to do is watch the the famous iconic dynasty yeah. uh, confrontation between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and see how it's done with two different mediocre TV actors.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Just the wide gulf in quality is there and it's down to, the acting capabilities, you know, um, two legends and two mediocre actors are vastly different now, obviously. Um, what struck you the most about Heat? I, I know it's been a while since you've seen it. I watch Heat like every couple of years. So yeah, It's very fresh in my mind. But what about you, you know, who hasn't seen Heat for a long time? What, what sticks out to you? About oh, Heat? man. So and, and how it relates to The Dark Knight.
1: Yeah, okay. I, I don't think I immediately... I, I mean, I knew that Nolan drew kind of, like, inspiration for that, right? But um, re-watching Hit the, this time around, I think the last time I watched Hit was maybe, like, oh, man, maybe 10 years ago. Long time Yeah, right, but now it's yeah. on Netflix. So, you know, uh I'm kind of, like, putting them on and revisiting that. So it's like, oh, man. Just, like, I think this is peak Al Pacino, peak De Niro, right? um. <laughs> Uh, just kind of at the height of their powers, kind of like, you know, cresting in their careers. And just before they start to play like strange versions of themselves uh, in all other films to come. um, Yeah. And it's just like that intense kind of like uh, character acting that that permeates throughout this entire film, right? Like it's so Mm -hmm. easy to forget um, these now extremely famous, extremely popular actors and, and just be lost in the characters that they're playing. Here. Yeah. so many quotable quotes, so many amazing lines, right? Uh, we were mm-hmm. joking about uh, the, the great ass line. Um, great,
0: big uh, ass! great big
1: ass! And, like, yeah. that scene still cracks me up. Uh, I, yeah. I was start laughing for that just because, like, it, it felt so out of place but so apt at the same time, right? Um, mm. and, it, and it's kind of nuts. Uh, Heat is... Oh, man. Just... Just the way in which the the script balances who we follow, right? Uh, not mm. in terms of just like the actual situations that surrounding them or their actual character journeys and so is so well balanced and climaxes at the point with the diner scene, right? That mm-hmm. at that point you don't um, take sides, right? Mm. And it's so crazy, and I think this is the first time I realized how little De Niro actually mm-hmm. says at the table. Uh, mm-hmm. in compared to Pacino, uh, and it's just that weird kind of like, uh, head tilted, uh, chin down, kind of like eyes up look that he he classically has owned right over the years, that is mm-hmm. so effective in conveying a myriad of just like, uh, emotions and kind of like the the character itself. While Pacino is just going on and on, um, mm-hmm. fucking love it, you know, fucking love it, and like that is just one of the very, very small ways that. Um, you can see how great actors can bring a script to life, right? Uh, after watching Heat, I went to watch the YouTube clip of LA Takedown. Mm-hmm. Man, I couldn't get through it, right? Like it's yeah. so 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 vastly different. Um, and like just all around, you know, um, an amazing cast, uh, an, an amazing soundtrack as well, um, and just like amazing kind of like storytelling in terms of its pacing in terms of its tension building in terms of its world building yeah i mm. gotta give it to, to michael Mann man like seriously it is a classic for a reason and if you guys haven't watched it you're missing out
0: yeah yeah you know the film is sort of set as uh um this immovable force meets you know the um what was that uh what was, immovable, what was the phrase? immovable object
1: force? unstoppable force
0: unstoppable force that's right yeah. that's the phrase i was going for um uh, or to put it sim- more simply, it's about um, forces in opposition, but with no clear good guy or bad guy. It's, yeah. a, it's a series of points and counterpoints, you know. Um, Similar to um, Batman and, and Joker, which was, you know, kind of the perfect thematic parallel between the two films. So yeah. It follows, you know, the cop, played by Al Pacino, and the bank robber criminal, played by Robert De Niro. Um, good and bad, light and dark. And throughout heat, Man- uh, Michael Mann is telling these stories in parallel, underscoring their similarities with scenes, conflicts, and characters serving as direct complements to each other, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this careful character construction and its balance of screen time and sympathy is why the now-legendary leger- diner scene in which the cop and criminal sit down for coffee and conversation, you know, carries so much weight. Yeah. Um, like you pointed out, like neither raises their voice, yeah. neither loses their cool. Mm-hmm. They speak from a place of almost mutual respect, even... Affection, you might call. Yeah. It. Um. It's like a first date. Two people marveling over <laughs> all that they have in common. Um. I do what I do best. I take down scores. Yeah. Know. Um. De Niro says, "You know, um. You do what you do best. Try to stop guys like me. Um. I don't know how to do anything else." Pacino uh, says to uh, to which, you know, De Niro replies, "Never do I. I don't much want to." Yeah. Um. It's great. That's the whole movie in one exchange, but that equal distribution of narrative weight and sympathy Mm -hmm. um isn't present in la takedown yeah um uh, (laughs) but it's present here um fantastic stuff you know um what do you think about there are a lot of movies about cops and robbers cat and mouse chases and stuff like that but i think michael man's heat is the pinnacle of that type of crime movie um, yeah what do you what what do you think uh, about, about that particular aspect of it um
1: I think if we look at, especially kind of like heist movies in the modern era, right? In the last kind of like 15 years of filmmaking, um, mm. so much of the time is is spent on either side of the fence, right? You're either yeah. like a largely sympathetic towards the hero because he gets a large part of the narrative time span, right? Or mm. like in stuff like Ocean's Eleven, right? Like you, you kind of like lean a lot more towards, you know, um, um, whoever's doing the heist itself. Right, and that goes all the way to like Public Enemy and so on and so forth. Um, mm. the, I, I'm not sure exactly if we get that same kind of balance in The Dark Knight itself, right? Um, no, yeah. The balance there is largely due to the fact that uh, Batman gets a lot of screen time and he led just amazing Joker performance, like, kind of balances that out with whatever screen time he is given. Uh, Correct, yeah. You know, and so I I mean like while it feels like balance, like there's nothing that comes close to kind of this distribution uh that's there. And like we haven't seen anyone kind of like dance that dance as well as man did with heat. Uh, mm. it is a curious thing given that heat is the inspiration for so many of these movies. Um yep. you know, or at least they aspire to that. But um, you know, as we kind of bring up, like they're all just kind of cosplaying. Not that there's anything wrong with cosplaying, but they're just mm. playing pretend at at, you know, a, a story like heat. Uh in mm. my mind, yeah, I I don't really recall another movie that has achieved that kind of fidelity when it comes to uh balancing out like opposing uh parties or opposing factions.
0: I think uh the closest that that I've ever come across was Hell or high water. Oh
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That.
0: Yeah. That. That's the closest that comes to the distribution of power that you see in heat. Though, yeah. Because we follow Jeff Bridges and his uh Native American partner mm-hmm. as much as we follow Chris Pine and his brother. Yeah. You know, um and yeah, you're, this is actually the first time this this highly charged crime thriller. It's actually the first time we ever see the on screen pairing of you know um. Uber Fespians, uh, <laughs> De Niro and Pacino. Yeah um they have been in a movie together before, The Godfather Part 2, most notably, but they <laughs> played the same character in different timelines in the Godfather Part II, so they were never able to interact. So just the interactions between De Niro and, and Pacino already is in itself a, a tantalizing prospect. Mm, yeah. Um that Michael Mann's film is you know an extraordinarily intelligent and stylish and violent and realistic study of moral decay and human nature in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. makes it doubly cool. Um, That's the cream on top of an already great cake, you know, and heat proves one thing is absolute. If you put great actors in a great script with a great visionary director in control, then you get a great movie. It's as simple as that. Yeah, Man as a writer and as a director has concocted this great duel between two mercurial, um, forces, uh, characters, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the battleground is LA, sort of shorn of glamour. Yeah, this is not LA as we see in many other movies. It is a moody, expensive cityscape. You know, it's shot in very earthly pastels. It's very twilight. It has a lot of twisted morals yeah. and crumbling relationships and dying dreams. And compare that to your average studio movie, it could be. The surface of the moon so far apart. <laughs> the, the film, the film sense of environment is peerless, and I think that's what Nolan was trying to capture in making Gotham City like LA in heat, yeah, um, specifically. You know, mm-hmm. and to to a lesser extent, Matt Reeves with um the unnamed city in Seven, um, parallel with Gotham City as well. Um, so much of this movie is great, particularly with the bank robbery sequences. Oh yeah, uh, which we already talked about the quiet the quieter moments but the big moments including the opening sequence and closing sequence the yeah. uh, shootout on, on the highway and everything yeah. um, it has this great blend of like really dumb action I mean I, I don't mean it, uh, it, like but, but I mean like dumb action that you see in, in blockbusters la. I yeah. don't mean that in a bad way yeah. you know dumb action is great. I, I love bad boys for example <laughs> yeah. but like a great mix of like this, this intelligent themes and nuanced acting with just really big large scale dumb action mm-hmm. that really hits you in every way it's the perfect movie that will appeal to um, cinephiles like myself yep. or casual audiences just walking into a theatre not knowing what what they're getting into mm-hmm. Um, it's this kind of middle brow movie that I think uh, nobody makes anymore, and that's kind of sad. Like. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I do have to say, like, man has incredible attention to detail when it comes to doing action. Uh, mm-hmm. I I feel as well. Like, let, let, if we talk about the highway scene. Um, I was reading like this particular thread where they're talking about like um, they reload when they need to reload, like they're counting the number of shots that they take, which is such a rarity in Hollywood, right? Because you know apparently like twenty round clips can fire like eighty bullets or something like that before they need to um, yeah, do yeah. that. So I, I really uh, enjoy it when a movie does that because like it adds a a sort of reality to you know the combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we don't always find, right? Uh, and of course, the bank sequence and just like De Niro's kind of like opener with, you know, this money is not your money. You don't have to worry about that. It's guaranteed. Like one of the greatest kind of like monologues in in any heist, right? Mm. Um, just the way that they do that. I remember watching a couple months ago, this, uh, I can't remember if it's Vox or uh, maybe it was GQ uh, where they were talking, they were they got uh, actual... You know, former bank robbers to kind of like break down the scene about how good it is, how realistic it is, whether they'll they'll go there. And like everyone has consistently ranked that as one of the best, most realistic, uh, and and kind of like truthful bank high scenes that they've seen. Um, Mm. And yeah, I love the way that that's just, you know, uh, is just all planned out. And like these guys are at the peak of what they're doing, which is robbing, you know, and doing, uh, pulling jobs and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Um what's interesting about this also it was that this movie came at a time when De-, De Niro and Pacino were waning in their powers like not necessarily like they couldn't do it anymore yeah. it's just that they seemed to be I don't know phoning it in uh, particularly in the mid 90s. Yeah. Uh Michael Mann actually managed to wrangle prime Pacino and you know um prime De Niro from like 10 years ago yeah. into this movie yeah. you know. You you, you still see sen- uh um, scenes where De Niro's like um Wide eye, bug eye, overacting, <laughs> snewing that you see in like central woman, you yeah, know, the, the the famous uh, great big ass scene is is one of those moments where he just like lapses into that. Not not that I mind uh, at all, because yeah. it it goes with his character. But I love that man was able to pull this from from two actors who was clearly just like cashing checks at that point. Yeah, the Nero's performance in particular is. A model of composure. Mm. Um, at one point, we see him reading a. I I recently rewatched this, so yeah. I saw him reading a book right in bed uh, or, or in a diner called "Stress Factors in Titanium." Yeah, yeah, mm. uh, <laughs> which encapsulates his character, which I did not un- I did not um, notice at the first point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, "Stress Factures in, in Titanium." That's perfect. That is what the character is, and but Chino is obviously more voluble, operating. Uh, almost in the same line of borderline self-parody as he was in like Sense of a Woman or, or The Devil's Advocate yep. but but yoking his flamboyance smartly to the demands of the role you know yeah. like whenever Vincent flies off the handle it's always shown to be purposeful mm-hmm. as the coping mechan- mechanism of a, post- of a possibly coked up cop um, it's not it, it's not explicitly shown that he's coked up but I mean he, that guy is definitely coked up oh yeah uh, I mean yeah, like given um,
1: the time period they set in right like it's 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 almost a sure bet. Uh, definitely,
0: you know. Um I love the way that Mann shoots, you know. He always uses 35mm film. Yeah. Um handheld sometimes and I love the pathos in Mann's movies um, including and especially Heat, you know, comes from this impossibility of reconciling individual excellence with conventional forms of security and of fulfillment. Yeah. He has he likes to go with this lone wolf archetype. And his lone wolf archetype is doubled in this movie because we have two lone wolf archetypes oh, on yeah. opposing sides, you know. Mm. And it's sold as this unprecedented summit of two ranking new Hollywood icons from the 90s, yeah. you know, um, which is sold by that coffee date, which everyone talks about. It has these, this pulpy grandeur yeah. That um, that is man at his most charismatic charismatic you know it feels both like artistic and formal but at the same time feels pulpy and dumb mm. you know, at the same time and and i love both sides of of heat which is why it's one of my favorite films of all time um any um thoughts about heat and Order dark night before we move on
1: oh man i i mean like i think we said majority of what like um what all the we sung all the praises that we possibly could um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, um, maybe we'll talk about a bit later the fact that we have so many, so much dinero, uh, so much, yeah, so much dinero, uh, in general in the stuff that we're talking about in this particular episode, uh, and mm-hmm. that how that just kind of like pans out. But yeah, heat, amazing, amazing thing. It makes me excited for um, what's man teaching project. Tokyo Vice? Uh, Tokyo Vice, yeah. Yeah, Tokyo Vice. I'm really, really hoping like the the promotional material for that seems very man in terms of like just the look, the style, the sheen of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but I'm looking for a lot more of like the 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 coffee scene of like, you know, uh, um, Al Pacino kind of telling down like, I need to hold on to my angst and that whole grand speech mm-hmm. that he makes to his wife. Like, I'm hoping that Vice has a bit more of that than the pro- promotional material is showing. But, you know, We'll yep. see. Fingers crossed.
0: Um, Tokyo Vice is a good show with two major problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've seen three or four episodes at this point. Yep. Um, I've not seen the whole show, but the major problems that I encountered, despite me liking the show, yep. the major problem is that. It is a story about Tokyo told from a white man's point of view. Uh, uh, and the second major problem is that white man is Ansel Elgort. Uh, um, yeah. So, it's a bit hard to look past that. La. But when the show delves into the Tokyo underworld featuring uh, featuring Japanese characters mm-hmm. uh, portrayed by Japanese actors, yeah. that's when the show is at its best. Uh,
1: is, it, is it Watanabe? Uh
0: yeah it. Watanabe is in it and, and there's a lot of other Japanese uh, more unknown Japanese actors in it too la, that do very 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 good work nice Um, and so Elgort is not Pacino and <laughs> or De Niro yeah um, and the fact that and so Elgort already has this cloud looming over him with the allegations and all of that or mm. makes it even may, adds even more like eh like an ick factor to yeah. it, you know yeah. Um, be, beyond the fact that it's like why are we following this white guy in the Tokyo underworld yeah. you know the story could have been crafted Around it. But anyways, whatever. Like, it was a decent show. Okay. I, should, I I you should give it a watch. But yeah, the answer all got is like not the best thing for the uh, show. If you do get a season two, yeah. move on to the Japanese gangsters <laughs> because they're more interesting.
1: Definitely. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh next up, let's move on to uh let's talk about this in tandem. We'll talk about Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy. Um, two sides of a film that amalgamated together to make the Joker. Mm. Um Todd Phillips's very acclaimed. Um, I would, in my personal opinion, unfairly so, uh 2019 film. Yeah. Um, pays homage to both unsettling classics, but I think misses their points. Mm. Um about the only thing everyone agrees upon, Joker, is that it's the kind of remake of t- it's a kind of remake of two of the two Martin Scorsese movies like the nineteen seventy six Taxi Driver and nineteen eighty two King Comedy, yeah. both of which star Robert De Niro as does Joker um, <laughs> who you know obviously an intentional homage right yeah. um, in Taxi Driver De Niro is a delusional self styled vigilante Travis Bickle mm. who is a Vietnam vet and a violent misanthrope who becomes obsessed with a campaign worker played by Sybil Shepard and a van underage prostitute played by Judy Foster, her first role actually Um, and then ultimately his own sordid heroic fantasies. In The King of Comedy, De Niro plays Rupert Popkin, a lousy but eternally optimistic (laughs) stand-up comedian obsessed with late-night comedy host uh, Jerry Langford played by Jerry Lewis here and deluded about his chances of getting on Langford's show. Um, Pupkin and his equally obsessed friend, Marsha concoct and then conduct a kidnapping to make sure their dreams come true. Mm -hmm. In these two movies, De Niro is playing two sides of the same coin. Men who lose touch with reality and blur their own paranoid fantasies with real life. Um, What's chilling about both is that they initially present as engaged, courteous, or even genial men, with a strongly developed moral sense and a genuine interest in others as humans. We are tricked, though, like the women they both pursue, Mm -hmm. into thinking that they are, at worst, ridiculous but harmless. It's only when they're rejected that their true colours start to emerge. As I mentioned, De Niro appears in Joker 2, though now as a secondary character. Here, he's in the Jerry Lewis role as Murray Murray Franklin, a late-night talk show host whom future Joker Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, idolizes. Like Rupert, Fleck spends hours in his home um, imagining being on Franklin's show. When he finally gets his wish, he's humiliated uh, by Franklin, who shows video from Fleck's disastrous stand-up routine on national TV. And, like Travis Bickle, when pushed to his itch, reflectance, violence. Mm. Um, Popkin is never violent. Uh, the gun he and Masha threaten Langford with isn't real, but the potential for it hangs over all his actions, yeah. you know, especially as they grow increasingly unhinged and that's what gives them power. All three of these guys, guys um, Travis, Rupert, and Joker have plenty in common and Joker knows it. All three of these movies coax us to watch a guy crack up, then violent, and then become a folk hero. Mm-hmm. And all three think they are existential heroes, men who stand alone against the pressure of the world around them, choosing to forge their own paths. Now, why does Joker fail? Why Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy succeed? Um, that's why I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> throw it to you. Yeah. Uh,
1: okay. I think for me, like one of the big issues I had with Joker, right? Yeah. Uh, in particular, is the I've always subscribed as a fan, having read. Oh, most of the major kind of Batman comics, right, is that Mm -hmm. Joker suffers from a form of hypersanity, right? Um, Such that, you know, the conventions of society and the culture surrounding it, like, that is not important to him because he sees the world in a vastly different way from everybody else. Um, Mm. And as such, that, uh, as do as X as that may be, right? Um, to explain his actions uh, is the reason why he does the thing he does, right? That like nothing is really of consequence in a sh- very nihilistic way. And therefore, yep. right, that explains the violence, that explains what he does. He is looking to entertain himself more or less, right? Uh, with this incredibly uh, obsessed uh, obsession with Batman, you know, as his mm-hmm. kind of count- counterpart. With Joker, we don't get that right it mm, is the yep. fullest uh it is the realization of delusion in the joker that we get and i feel like um um having watched king of comedy and 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 joker back to back right the non violence that we get in king of comedy feels far more threatening and far mm. more malicious than um the violence that we get from joker right because mm. it constantly simmers under the surface in king of comedy right and having watched those two movies back to back uh i felt uh, upon rewatching joker like it seems so much less potent of a movie mm. right in terms of its themes in terms of what it's trying to say even in terms of like the lines that are very clearly paying homage to king of comedy right it is a pale pale comparison um, not just and i don't think it's the actors necessarily but just like the script and the violence that they choose to include uh as part of this joker story right takes away from the the just kind of the weight right because uh, so so much of the time like the truly horrifying or terrifying characters are the ones that are capable of a great deal of harm uh, but always find a way to kind of skirt that like they get their way without necessarily having to you know shoot someone in the head kill a bunch of men uh, a, a bunch of suits in in the train uh mm. and all of that right and it feels as though the exploration with pump uh with pumpkins delusion and the way that mm-hmm. that ends feels far more satisfying despite the fact that it's an unknown whether or not that actually happens right mm-hmm. uh because it feels like it sees that to its logical... Not logical. It it, it sees it to its delusional conclusion, right? Uh, As part of that character and an extension of the story past what would be the climax and denouement of the action. Um, Mm -hmm. But for Joker, you don't get that, right? It is what it is. It sets it up. It becomes a prequel um, to whatever kind of like universe like Todd Phillips is creating in his head with the inclusion of this Batman character. Right. Mm. And and it doesn't work because Batman isn't there. Right. It doesn't Mm. work because as a origin story, it doesn't it it misses out on like the two big things, the fact that number one, that Joker isn't delusional, right? Mm -hmm. For for most intents and purposes, if you're talking about like the comic books or so many other different iterations of the character, right? And there is no counterpart to that, you know? Yeah. Um and that for me is why Joker fails. Um, to capture what I think is the essence of that particular character and turns it into a facsimile of the King of Comedy slash Taxi Driver.
0: Yeah, it captures the visual aesthetic of Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy and the storylines or or arcs of the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver without actually getting into the meat of the thematic meaning of, of what Scorsese was trying to get to, you know. Just because Joker succeeds in looking like these films, it doesn't mean that Phillips also managed to convey their original meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Scorsese has always been an empathetic filmmaker, first and foremost. Um, And Phillips has shown that his first foray into dark, character centric storytelling, that Mm -hmm. that his disposition as a filmmaker is much more cynical and cold than Scorsese's was. By presenting us with a narrative bereft of comedy, without a clear voice of reason, in a world that is as unironic as it is disturbing, Joker functions as a Scorsese movie devoid of Scorsese's most important quality, the humanity. Um, I think films manages to capture Scorsese's spirit without its soul, Mm. making Joaquin Phoenix's admittedly amazing performance or take on the villain Mm -hmm. feel less like the Clown Prince of Crime and more like a Frankenstein's monster of 80s and 70s Corsesi movie references, yeah. you know. Um, that's where it feels and, and it's kind of sad. Um, when you look at Travis Bickle and 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 uh as, as characters, you know, like um all all three characters in all three movies are in their early 30s, yeah. you know, um, early in their careers, and their their pathology that simmers under Bickle's surface seems Born or something uncomfortably familiar, I think something that we all understand. Mm-hmm. The king of comedy spots the same feeling of uneasy lived-in knowingness, you know. Yeah. Although it's um, I think Pupkins' destructive impulse seems more bent on glory seeking self-humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a limelight rather than hurting anyone, you know, familiar ter- ter- territory once again. Yeah. You know? Um Pupkin's line as it led away uh from Langford set in handcuffs is better to be king for a night than a schmuck for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, rings true, but in a way that's only gotten more distressing uh, in the years since. Yeah. Especially considering the comedy scene um, today, you know. Yeah. Um, Bickle, on the other hand, uh, like unlike Pupkin, who has kind of, <laughs> but I think because King of Comedy has become such an underseen classic, yeah. um, that he he never quite gained the fan base that Travel Tra- Travis Bickle has. Travis Bickle seems to have a fan base that. <laughs> kind of misses the point of Travis Bickle and seems to admire him. Yeah. Um. I think this thriving fan base is presumably made up of the same guys who idolized Tyler Durden. Yeah. Um. On the internet, you can find all kinds of fan art, you know, featuring like Bickle, uh, featuring Bickle, you know, like like handmade posters and wall tapestries and stuff like that. Um. And I think most guys who went to school or college probably had a friend who, who you know, uh, had a photo of the infamous Mohawk in their in their room or something. Yeah. Um, Biko comes across as cool and Pupkin comes across as, as a schmuck and both men are hailed as heroes by the people in the end but only Biko has gotten away with murder mm-hmm. Um, and yet maybe we can't f- help but feel some kind of sympathy or kinship for both Biko and yeah. um, lonely men who the world does not wish to treat kindly both movies take their power from how they toy with us kind of never telegraphing whether or not we're supposed to feel this yeah. and then showing by the end definitely that the people who elevate Travis Bickle and Robert Pupkin to the status of heroes are fools which is to say that if we idolize them we are also fools mm-hmm. and Joker inspires a very different audience reactions than his heroes yeah. you know the film is explicitly inspired by both because himself is a producer on uh, both uh, he was very hands-off with it yeah. but you know presumably you know he had some input into Todd Phillips' story um, it's complicated, but I think Top Flips just doesn't capture it because he doesn't capture the humanity of both characters, as, as I mentioned. Yeah. Like, by mashing them together into one tale mm-hmm. and removing most of the film's humour and irony, we are left with a movie that quite, can't quite get a handle on its protagonist the way that Scorsese's two films managed to. Yeah, And that's complicated by wrapping up the Bickle pumpkin avatar into the skin of the Joker who comes with his own baggage. Yes. <laughs> you know? uh, who comes with his own history. Um, and who has himself become a meme for the internet's angry man elements and fringe? You know, mm-hmm. um, it's yeah, it's 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 at the same time fitting that he would make the Joker like taxi driver and The King of Comedy, but at the same time not. Yeah, it's it's hard to really do with Fleck and what the King of Comedy did with Pumpkin when the Joker's biggest fans veer awfully close to a pumpkin type with bickle-like aspirations. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's very sad for Fleck and his eventual joker evolution. And the resulting character is just a pathetic victim. Yeah. And we know what we're supposed to feel for him, pity. That's signal throughout the movie loud and clear. He's beaten up, abandoned, mocked, and mistaken. Yeah. But unlike Bickel and Pupkin, when Fleck finally finds himself through violence, it reads unequivocally as a moment of self self-actualization. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to chill like he did it, guys. He finally overcame his oppressors and came to his own. Sure, you can condemn his actions, but then aren't you the bad guy too? Um, this is the weird cognitive dissonance that Todd Phillips didn't get from his two inspirations, mm, you know? Yeah, for sure. um, I, I, I don't know, I'll, I want to get your take on that as well. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean, like, it uh, we have to be very careful, I think, like when we're watching something like Joker, what. Is being shown. Does it actually humanize Flex's character, right? Mm. Um, his struggle and his, the abuse that he kind of goes through, the kind of revelations that we get from his childhood and all of that, right? They seem to hit the same beats as, like, you know, Uh, Bickle's kind of PTSD or kind of like the delusional psychosis that that Pumpkin has. Like, they they ring the same, but they're not the same. Right. Um, mm-hmm. there is there aren't really moments in which we see Fleck uh as a truly vulnerable human as much as a mm-hmm. victim. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that to me is an important distinction to make. Um in in terms of like the decisions he makes and, and stuff like that. Like they it, it all has the shades of what we saw in the taxi driver and what we see in King of Comedy. Uh, but it's not the fullness of, of of how human a person can be, right? Uh, mm. And as a result of that, when he overcomes his oppressor, uh, when he is no longer victim and becomes the, well, perpetrator, right? Uh, yep. It's not the same as... Uh, it's not the same as Biko going into kind of like rescue Iris, right? It's not the same yep. as, you know um taking that moment uh a pumpkin taking that moment on stage that 10 minutes of fame uh, to say something that is his truth uh Mm -hmm. because we don't get that with joker right like he never has that moment the actualization is not self-realization uh i i I, if if that makes sense right um so, I, I don't know. Like, there's, it's hard to kind of break it down in that way uh because mm. the way that Joker is paced, right? Like, it's one thing after another, one thing after another. There isn't really enough time for the character to breathe and to come to terms with those things, right? And whereas for both Biko and Pupkin, like, there are these moments of of clarity within the film itself that give us the space to say, like, okay, like this is who he is as he is at this point in time and therefore all actions he takes after this stem from that. Um, I'm not sure if we get the same thing with Joker. Uh, mm, yep. Additionally, right, Joker yep. suffers from the fact that the Joker character comes with his own baggage and mm. this looming, looming thing over the movie is the fact that Heath Ledger did it better. Uh, yep. Right? Right. Uh, and we've just talked about the Dark Knight and all of that and, and Heat, right? But, at the end of the day, like to me, life as far as live action goes, like Ledger's Joker is as close to the source material as it gets, right? Yeah. Hyper intelligent, hyper sane, uh, chaotic because he wants to be chaotic. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it feels as though like his Joker is never angry, he's never yep. disenfranchised because he doesn't care about any of that, right? Like he mm-hmm. doesn't pay attention to the rules because the rules don't apply to him as far as he's concerned. And that yeah. makes him so much more threatening against you know um, against his against Batman against his counterpart. Um, mm-hmm. But while while uh, Fleck rages against you know the system that has him under his thumb and all of that, like that just rings false, right? He doesn't feel as much of a, a force of nature like Heath's Joker does, and mm-hmm. more just like you know, a celebrated, uh, someone who eventually becomes celebrated for for enacting violence and acting out, uh, yep. which in and of itself is a, a problematic kind of thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. I feel if we were to extend the logic with that and eventually have a Batman in in Phillips's universe, right? Like, yep. it's not going to work, right? Batman is going to trounce this Joker, like, any time of the day just because, like, it's not the same motivations. It's not the same kind of like drama behind that. Um, the character just isn't built the same way to withstand kind of, you know, vengeance right? yep. <laughs> as we go into the next movie. Yeah.
0: Y- yeah, definitely. You know, um, I think both the King of Comedy and Joker are, uh, and of, of course, sexy driver very much like you know, the sad clowns managed to become massively successful as comedians, you know, and offering kind of this commentary on how the media landscape both oppresses and idealizes outsiders. But what makes The King of Comedy so effective, more so than Joker, is that it is human in this commentary and the film is actually hilarious. Not in a laugh-out-loud, knee-slapping way, but in a kind of darkly acerbic, ironic sense that makes it impossible to take seriously. Like, one look at Pumpkin, a character whose name is constantly mistaken for pumpkin, something <laughs> that I I almost like do also when I'm doing this review will have you chuckling at the sheer stupidity of it all. Yeah, and the Joker is just not like that. His plight as a mentally ill loner is so tragic, yet also so repulsive that when he succeeds in the end, it's unclear if the audience is supposed to be disgusted or happy with him. Um, that's a distinction that is not in Taxi Driver or The King of Comedy because. Yeah. That distinction is made clear by by Martin Scorsese. I mean, down to like the small things, like Phillips's reliance on a Frank Sinatra soundtrack <laughs> is is also something that brings Scorsese to mind.
1: <sighs>
0: um, yeah, even, even little things. And 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 that song that that frequently plays, you know, the nineteen sixty six Sinatra recording of "That's Life." You know, the the song mm-hmm. tells a simple story of a man who's continually knocked down in life but always gets back on his horse. Uh, by playing it so much and by having Joaquin Phoenix even mouth the words of the song in the film's ending. We are left with the idea that this song seems to represent the message that Phillips is seeking to send to the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, sure, Fleck is knocked down a whole lot in Joker and he manages to bounce back. But after all the shooting and stabbing and killing and carnage and crying, um, it's all presented without morals in Phillips's film. Joker doesn't feel like a story of redemption or of warning at all. It feels like a gradual loss of humanity and Fosco Sessi, the filmmaker who once called movies an act of faith, I think all the references in Phillips' film don't feel like homages. They actually feel like blasphemy to me. Um, Which is why I feel, in the end, the film that most closely matches in terms of quality is source material is The Dark Knight, as you were talking Mm -hmm, about, right? mm -hmm. The Dark Knight most closely matches heat in terms of quality. The one that least, the one that is furthest apart of all these is Joker, and the Scorsese films, I think. Um, Something that falls in the middle of them both, um, neither too great or neither too bad, as we have talked about in our review, is Matt Reeves' The Batman. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) Man, uh, probably more so than um, Joker or The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. Matt Matt Reeves' wears his influences more blatantly than the other two films, than the other two Batman films. Um, Uh Like, from the moment Matt Reeves came about the Batman right the conversation from <laughs> interviews to um, trailers has, has been on the director's influences his inspirations mm-hmm. you know Reeves and Robert Pattinson have spoken at length about their many sources of inspiration um which you know effectively sets the Batman apart from past iterations um in a sense yeah the film absolutely sets the Batman apart from past um, inspiration uh, from past iterations uh but the Batman itself um how do I describe this? The Batman is more of a David Fincher mood board than an actual movie. Mm. If you know what I mean. Yeah.
1: Um, uh,
0: it's just David Fincher things thrown <laughs> together. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Um, okay, le- let me describe like Seven and, and Zodiac. If you've never seen Seven and Zodiac, you'll probably be like, what the fuck? Watch Seven and Zodiac.
1: <laughs> please Please the,
0: do the influences and the stuff that is already copied is just so blatant that you can't miss it. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not something subtle like the dark Knight and heat, which is actually not that subtle to be honest. Like, yeah. or, <laughs> you know. But, but Reeves definitely took a page or two from David Finch's book on world building. Uh, and, the Batman is, I guess, a little better for it. You know, like the, the rundown streets of Gotham seem caked in the same grime as the unnamed city in Seven, which could be Gotham City as well. I've always in my head canon always considered it Gotham. Um, Kevin Spacey's circular seems made for Gotham. Um, it has this perpetual down downpour. It's always raining, uh, a fixture in both films. Uh, and and the downpour can never wash away the city's uh, uh, filth. You know, it can never make it clean. There's perpetual darkness. Uh, Batman embodies the shadows of Gotham as a means to keep criminals in check. And, you know, the cinematographer for the Batman, Greg Fraser, kind of wields that to the same effect. Um, Like Seven and so many other crime thrillers, the Batman avoids any light that feels natural. Like Bruce Wayne himself, the film (laughs) Perpetual Darkness forces us all to be nocturnal animals. (sighs) Um, I think the Batman also one of the bright spots of Batman is that it's caused big points for, I think, scaling back the titular hero's resources. Um, Bruce Wayne is in year two of his exploits, which means he has to lean more on his talent for sleuthing than fancy gadgets or allies. In The Batman, Bruce Wayne has Lieutenant James Gordon on his side, which adds to the feeling of being overwhelmed in this sea of corruption and crime. Mm -hmm. Um, And the good cop, crazy cop dynamic has been hashed out in countless detective films over the years. The relationship between Batman and Jim Gordon owes a lot to Seven. Uh, because of um, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman's character dynamic too. Mm. You know? um, then there's also the film's killer, John Doe, the, his cryptic MO, um, his diaries and journals, which is strongly reminiscent of yet another film, Fincher film, Zodiac, yeah. this time based on real life. On the big screen, Riddler has kind of become synonymous with Jim Carrey's iteration. <laughs> when you say Riddler, people think of, of that version, right? yeah. the pink hat scenery iteration from Batman Forever. Yeah. Depending on who you ask, his campy take translates effortlessly into any Batman film. But Matt Reese was keen to take the character in another direction. Mm-hmm. Um, in many many interviews, he has said the Zodiac Killer was the real world analogy that he used to ground this particularly huh. this particular member of Batman's rogues gallery yeah. from you know um, the duct tape, um, the, his his crudely made costume, yeah. the ciphers. Um, that Zodiac leaves behind, you know, all the cryptic ciphers that the real world detectives have trouble cracking. What Batman does crack, um, the Riddler's reestablishment as a serial killer is one of the key ways that the Batman grounded its story. And it was important for Reeves to strike a balance between that and the scope of a superhero film. Mm. Um, But it is, in the end, still a film about cosplaying crime fighters. So there were a lot of outlandish influences that counteracted uh, what he wanted to do in terms of uh, copying the vibe and tone of Seven and Zodiac. Um, Having we seen Seven and Zodiac recently, um, how... Blatant were the influences <sighs> to you, and 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 what what do you catch from what Matt Reese was trying to take from both movies, and was he successful?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, where do we start? This is actually a lot of things to pick out. Let's let's talk mm. about let's talk about the unnamed city in Seven and Gotham first. Yeah. Yep, right. Yep. I feel like um, again, right. It it captures the the look and the feel of it. Right. Like th- mm. the fact that it's worn down, it's downtrodden, it's hopeless. It feels cynical. It feels Cold, it feels uncaring. Uh, you know, both it's always raining. And it's always raining. Like both were either always raining or always kind of like dark, right? And and misty mm-hmm. and obscured in a way where like there's no visual accuracy for either film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I get and which I understand and which works for the Batman for sure. Uh mm-hmm. however, I feel as though we don't get enough time with non- lead characters in the batman to really see how the city wears them down right yes yes it's such a huge it is a, such a huge huge point um especially when we're talking about um uh, uh, uh a character in 7 right like um mm-hmm. um brad pitt's wife uh and just like how she is struggling as as a, a new kind of like a uh, uh, person and and that really important diner scene where she sits down with with morgan freeman's character um, mm-hmm. and, and just talks about how it's affecting her and how it's wearing her down, how she's terribly afraid of the mm-hmm. fact of raising a child in, 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 in this city, right? And how, like, you know, she's terrified of how it's uh, affecting... um. Affecting Mills' uh, uh, um, character and Mills' kind of like drive to be to do something good in the city. We don't get that mm. with the Gotham and the Batman. And I think that is a wasted kind of opportunity, right? All this all the minor characters, um, even from Gordon himself, right? Like you don't sense that hopelessness, you don't sense that despair. And because mm. of that, it feels as though um the riddler is far less interesting or motivated a character than John Doe is as a villain, right? Mm. Um because like you immediately understand what John Doe is talking about. Right. Like Spacey's amazing kind of performance in the in the in the um third act of the film. Um, Mm -hmm. You sympathize, you understand why he's taking the stance that he's taken, right? Uh, Much in the same way like for the Zodiac killer as well, right? Like it's well explained. Uh, and it's understandable given enough context of the world at the time why they Mm -hmm. do the things they do why they explain the way they explain why they preach the way that they preach Um, to borrow from Somerset's kind of like very insightful um, analysis of of what um, John Doe is doing Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, but for Riddler it doesn't feel that way right like I feel like (sighs) Reeves' Riddler takes too much from Joker's plate <laughs> sure. if, if yeah. that makes sense right like you have these two actors right and and uh, I I mean with with the fact that we have uh, um Barry Barry Cohen's Joker kind of looming on the edge of that as well yeah. just makes the two characters seem like extremely conflated they feel like one character possibly right as opposed mm-hmm. to like um as opposed to like the very clearly defined campy Jim Carrey Riddler, right? Mm. Who, despite all his camp, who, despite all the shenanigans, who, despite the ridiculous green latex outfit, right, is extremely effective in what he does. Um, yeah. you know, it-
0: in terms of distincting of of um being a uh, of. Identifying himself distinctly. Yes,
1: exactly. Right, like yeah. as as a villain, branding on point. Right, this one branding mm. not clear at all. Sure, you leave riddles, but does that make you the riddler, necessarily? Sure. Right. Uh, yeah. And it it feels less compelling that way because I think like Batman, by and large, is really defined by his rose gallery, right? Mm. Uh, and and I think like the Dark Knight is a very clear vision of that. And then less yep. so, you know, when Bane shows up. um, it, Yeah. um, So, again, like, the context is missing for Gotham in The Dark Knight. Mm. We don't see enough of the city, quite literally, and how it affects its people for yeah. it to set up that way, right? Like, sure, there's an orphanage, right? And it's different because you were an orphan with privilege and I was an orphan without privilege and all of that. Sure, but it doesn't show me like the greater context of that, right? And I think it's a missed opportunity to spend more time with Gordon, maybe, right? Just to kind of elucidate that for the audience. Uh
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel that Man Reeves almost expects its audience to have seen seven and to assume that seven is the same city, you know. Mm, He's just setting it there, yeah. you know. Um, um, yeah, I mean the comparisons especially with You've you've already touched upon most of the seven comparisons. One of the biggest comparisons with Zodiac isn't just the ciphers that the riddle leaves, yeah. that's quite quite blatant, but it's also this idea of the, of obsessive sleuthing of 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 be of obsessed detectives. Yeah. Who who can't go beyond the mystery and can't live their lives. You know, it's a missed opportunity in that aspect as yes. well. Because the film doesn't, doesn't cover Batman's obsession. Yeah. Or it doesn't feel as obs- as unhealthily obsessive uh, because he's trying to save lives and all that. He's doing this for a good reason, mm-hmm. right? And so are the, te- the detectives in Zodiac, you know. But I think Fincher manages to capture the dark side of that better. Yes. Um I want to touch upon like the two films, I guess, independent of uh the independent of the Batman. Yeah. Um David Fincher's first film is not Seven. No. <laughs> David Fincher's first film is the horrendous alien tree directed by him and written by Joss Whedon. Mm. You would think that that would be um, a, a match made and have been dream pairing when both were early in their careers and in their primes, right? Yeah. But I think 20th century Fox meddling seems to have uh, driven David Fincher out of big-budget studio uh, filmmaking for the rest of his career. Yeah. Um, this botched production is is man. You should re- there are books written about <laughs> it. You should go read it. I I have. It. Okay. But, okay. But seven is where finch's filmography truly begins, yes. and it's fitting for a director who kind of identifies himself as a cynic, and that he should lead a movie that abhors human nature, um, massacres the good in more ways than one, and even feels a slight reverence towards its heinous killer. There's a beauty to the cruelty as the movie presents a stylized realism that taps into a rotting, fetid world, but does so without establishing a particular locale, you know, drenching the unnamed city in rain and sinking the shots into darkness and low angles. Um, Seven is where David Fincher really came out to play. Um, Alien Tree was kind of this big-budget studio trap, and he finally... Freed himself from, mm, from it, you know. Mm. Um, there's so much of it that that the Batman takes inspiration from, including the meeting of John Doe, almost at the end of the film. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah. like
0: we don't meet John Doe played by Kevin Spacey until the third act. Yes. but Fincher brings us right into his mind with the opening credits. Uh, the cold open itself is a somber prologue to the evil we are about to witness. But there's this artfulness to John Doe's techniques. Yes. you know. Um, in the commentary track, Fincher argues that Doe has more enthusiasm than technique but i beg to differ Mm. um somerset agrees that something like keeping the sloth victim alive for a year takes incredible will but it can be done it can't be done without technique yes um doe is certainly zealous but he's also precise exacting almost completely uncompromising unless backed, you know into a corner at which point he still makes it work to his advantage you know um this description obviously matches the riddler but um, Fincher managed to take us into the mind of John Doe and his psychosis or his... I, I don't know the actual medical term for it. La, but whatever his mental illness is, he manages to make us feel that the revulsion towards that without seeing John Doe in a way that Matt Reeves didn't make me feel for the Riddler. Do you feel the same way? Oh, like I was i was never scared of the Riddler or scarred by the Riddler in the way that I was scarred by John Doe. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. I think like... um the intentionality behind every every murder that John Doe does, right, is so specific and so well thought out, right? And it's mm. not just because, like, oh, you know, he's read Paradise Laws, oh, you know, he's referring to, you know, uh, the Cardinal Sins and all of that, right? Like, it is genuine kind of, like, puzzles. Like, when John Doe flexes, he's really flexing, right? Everything that the Riddler throws at the Batman gets solved like that. It is a non. It's a non-issue, right?
0: Maybe because they're simple riddles, which anyone in the audience could guess themselves. Yeah. not the world's greatest detective. Exactly
1: right. And I yeah. uh, again, I was like we've had multiple conversations about this, right? Like so few iterations of the Batman have ever come close to tackling the fact that at the end of the day, his superpower more than anything else is that he's the world's greatest detective. And strangely enough, the closest that we've seen of that is Ben Affleck's Bruce Wade. Yeah, yeah, right. Which I think is a shame. It really, really is a shame. Like, when your villain, especially in a Batman movie, is not up to par, right, it makes it that much poorer of a movie, you know. Uh, And when you say you're drawing from like something like Seven or something like Zodiac, like these puzzles, these riddles, these questions, these ciphers are. a man hours tons and tons of man hours are spent of that people are obsessed with it people dedicate their lives to solving it right and then you just solve it in like one liners and in the end like your amazing second third act is uncovered by you know the fact that some Catwoman by Cat okay brought brought to you by Catwoman and then the entire yeah. Unnecessary extra plot is because you know someone some cop's dad happened to be a you know <laughs> upholstery guy like yeah oh man what a cheap cop out seriously like yeah yeah man uh again like guys we've already reviewed the Batman uh so mm-hmm. if you want please go check out um uh, the last episode of general equality yeah, yeah. Uh, for all of um, us.
0: um I mean I guess what the riddler should have done is make his uh riddles in Spanish, in because you know Batman doesn't seem to understand very basic fundamental Spanish. Um, <laughs> it's weirdly, his uh his script tonight yeah. like, in this in in this film or in this universe, that like, he just doesn't understand Spanish. Yeah. um, it, it just so fails to capture. It captures the style yeah. and tone of seven without capturing the real grotesqueness uh, or the real feeling of dread that seven captures. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, John Doe is a far better villain than the Riddler is. Um, Detectives Somerset and Mills are far more interesting protagonists than Bruce Wayne is, you know. And the Seven is in a way timeless, you know, because it's you almost don't know what period it's set it, yeah. There's no pop culture ads. Yeah. I mean, Somerset uses a typewriter, but that could be a a character um, you know quirk because yeah. everyone else in the precinct uses computers uh, it could be set in any time you yeah know? and I think that's what Fincher is trying to do because he's trying to tell us that you know sin is timeless. Mm. Sin has always been there, mm-hmm. you know. And the nature of the grotesqueness of his crimes, how nauseating they are, particularly yeah. gluttony, sloth and lust oh, were are, are stuff that are uh, burn into my mind. Yeah. Um, in a way that I guess of a Batman either didn't want to uh, depict because it was a PG thirteen was it a, yes it was a PG thirteen yeah. film and you know um, parents are going to be bringing their kids to watch a Batman movie um, it 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 just feels like a very handicapped version of what he's trying to um, yeah trying to copy or trying to take inspiration from uh, yeah um,
1: just as a t- sorry yeah, um, just as a testament go- to how amazing Seven is right I've watched Seven so many times. But yep. the final the final climax, the final act, right, and how it culminates mm. in the field always gets me. It always gets mm. me how brilliant that plan is and how uh, how heightened the the emotional dilemma must be for everybody involved. For Somerset, for Mills, for John Doe himself, right? Like yep. that is seven is a masterclass in tension building. Uh, mm. All throughout the entire film, and for it to culminate into into and a nearly perfect scene, right? where everything that has been simmering below the surface for the audience, everything mm. when it comes to like, you know uh, understanding John Doe and his intentionality in in the grotesqueness of what he's doing, in the violence that he's perpetuating, and what he's saying as a commentary about the society that these men are living in. Right, and the eventual decisions that these detectives make or try, Mm -hmm. at very least, to fight against, like, I mean, that is Mm. so good, so amazing. And it gets me every time, despite the fact that I've watched 7, maybe 20 times already, you know. Mm. And we don't get any of that in the Batman, unfortunately. And I think, like, again, I think the first time we talked about it, uh, we talked about the Batman, it's like, it's it's Fincher cosplay, unfortunately, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Again, nothing wrong with cosplay, guys, love cosplay, but like, ugh. it's it's pretending. Uh, yep. But that being said, it is still one of the best Batman movies we've got, so.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And when you want to talk about detective narratives, right, perhaps, in especially in, in the detective aspect of it, yep. no other Fincher film manages to capture that, not even Seven, as well as Zodiac oh, yeah. Um With a runtime of nearly three hours, this film feels almost unbelievably swift. It is a film that supercharges every minute with a maximum of minutiae. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is maximum minutiae yep, every yep, minute. Yep. It is dizzyingly dense and intricate in the extreme. Zodiac is the most information-packed procedural I've seen since um, all the presidents men or JFK, and far more restrained though when it comes to theorizing. The screenplay, which was meticulously written by James Vanderbilt, um, had been adapted from a pair of books by Robert Graysmith, who mm-hmm. is played in the film here by uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah. um, who was a cartoonist at the Chronicle, um, who kind of globbed onto the Zodiac case and eventually took it on as his life's work. Um, everything has been. Checked against ver variables, uh, verifiable sources, then staged with the utmost fidelity and precision. Um, Note how Fincher resists dramatizing the events in Paul Stein's cab. You know where the cab driver was shot, and he sticks sticking to a representation of his known route. The result is kind of this like um, orgy of. Empiricism, an orgy of empirical evidence. <laughs> uh, um, uh, a monumental geek fest of fact-checking, speculation, deduction, code-breaking, note-taking, forensics, graphology, fingerprint analysis, warrants wrangling, witness testimony, phone calls, news reports. you know um, uh, I, w- I felt as a viewer like I was stuck in a filing cabinet for three hours and I meant <laughs> that as a compliment. You know? <laughs> It's it's a remarkable feat of concentration. Zodiac is the most fully mature triumph of detective stories, yep. for other reasons that I mentioned. Do you agree?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, I think it wasn't so much a filing cabinet necessarily, but it definitely felt like one of those like red thread com- conspiracy rooms. Oh mm. man, I fucking love that. Uh, just the fact that I get, I feel like I'm tangled up, right, with yep. all the things that are presented to you and as i watch these men struggle to uncover mm. this and the and the cost at which it comes at to their personal lives and their families and so on and so forth and careers um mm. like that in and of itself is i feel at a loss right like i understand that there is no real way to find at the truth and it eats as me as someone who is watching these men do it particularly Hall's character uh, Mm -hmm. I understand why he's driven to this obsession because you know with everything that's presented to you with everything that's thrown at you with everything that's uncovered or unknown or uncertain right like it adds an extra degree of frustration as an audience member that is captured so remarkably by Fincher and the actors Uh, um that i get it i know why you would throw your family away for you to write this book right i understand Mm. why all of that happens you know uh and being able to do that in the most subtle of ways right like it's never going out say oh yeah i am frustrated with this right like it's all it's all showing it's not telling um yes yeah that makes it then it is a masterclass in the art form of that, in the medium mm-hmm. of, of, of film, to be able to uh, to elicit those emotions without ever broaching it outright, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's even quite different for Fincher because I think Fincher tends to be quite operatic in his films, like very big emotions, massive denouements, uh, portentousness, flamboyance, You know, and Zodiac, by contrast, is very coolly cal- calibrated. Um, it's very detached. It's all—it's mathematically precise, you know. Um, capable of great variety and nuance, and controlled by a strict discipline. It's a film that never raises it vo- its voice in the way that Seven does, because it needs to speak clearly and carefully, and it's got a hell of a lot to say, you know. Um, Fincher has always said that he's just wanted to tell a good story, and mission accomplished. It's that very lack of pretense, coupled with a determination to get the facts down with. Uh, maximum economy and objectivity yep. that gives Zodiac its hard, bright integrity. Mm. It's a crime saga. It's also a newspaper drama. It's also a period piece, and it works just fine in all three respects. But the thing that it works best at is an allegory of life in the information age. Mm. In that respect, I think the the film is at its most successful. The medium is the message in Zodiac. Yep. You know, you know, um, a serial killer flick that isn't really about the serial killer. It's a procedural key to the psychology of procedure yeah. <laughs> more than the man engaged in it. You yeah. know. How many times have we seen, quote-unquote, uh, the genre is called procedurals, right? how many times have we seen procedurals that pay no attention to procedure? All the time, <laughs> nearly every procedural on TV or in film yeah. pays no attention to actual procedure. Yeah. This film more is not about serial killer or even detectives or even obsession. This film is about procedure. You know, um, Zodiac is about information systems of bewildering complexity laid out for our contemplation. Mm-hmm. It's it's an epic reflective analysis of how one, canny lunatic triggered. An all-consuming flood of data that swept up and drowned three different entities yes. the media, the police, and one man's life, yep. you know. And and Zodiac does, you know, have you know circular elements, of course, like because it's about a circular, but it's not really about nope. that. It's about media, communication systems, and procedure. Yeah. I've never seen a film quite as dry like this be so exciting. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, you would think like the, the subject matter, but because it is its it is it. It, it takes you unaware. I remember going to watch Zodiac for the first time, right? Like, I was not expecting that at all, you know? Uh, just the fact that I was like, okay, maybe we follow one guy. Maybe we, you know, see, like, maybe there'll be parts of obsession there, but the overwhelming amount of information that comes in, the ridiculous number of calls that they have to deal with when they ask for tips, right? The, mm. the crushing amount of uh, um, just suspects that they need to kind of sort out and all of that, right? Like mm. none of that was something I expected when I watched Zodiac for the first time, and every yeah. time I rewatch it, it strikes me as um clinical in such a strange mm. way, right? Like to to say that this overwhelming amount of information is clinical is is weird and paradoxical, uh, but mm. it is poised to. Be evocative, right? Uh, of of just like um an overwhelming of your senses and your your mind's ability to process that while you are watching the movie. Yep. Yeah. Um,
0: yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I think that's the most spe- special uh part of Zodiac. Why I find it to be so hard to convince people to watch Zodiac <laughs> because the description of it sounds so boring. Yeah, right? but it's not. It's not. Yeah. Um, and it it, it proves that you can wrench out good drama from good detective procedure, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is something that I think a lot of detective films, including The Batman, seem to uh don't at least don't do as successfully. La. I'm not gonna say they're all failures, yep. but none of them are as successful as yeah. as Zodiac. I think
1: yeah. I mean even if we go with like with the next nearest kind of like recent thing, like Hunter, right? You don't get mm. the kind of the same kind of finesse with that you know, um which which I think is unfortunate because it's promising in so many ways,
0: yeah, 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 you know it's it's a, it has a very unconventional tree act structure also yes. um because all three parts are basically divided by by time periods mm-hmm. and and zodiac isn't even concerned with giving you a, a strong sympathetic hero oh, yeah. he's they're more concerned with observing characters. In their operative roles in a larger phenomena, which is the consumption of media, you yeah, know? Um, and it's it's fascinating. I've never seen a film like Zodiac, uh, and I don't think I will ever see it again because it's tough to make. <laughs> uh, um, but closest I can, and they're not one-to-one comparisons. Sure. It's very apples and oranges. But I think David Simon does something similar with his shows as well mm-hmm. when it talks uh, when he kind of investigates um, ecosystems of fringe communities, right. Uh, it's something that David Simon does really well and really taps into mm-hmm. in the way that Zodiac does. Um, and that's the closest comparison I can I can get. Um, any last thoughts on Seven or Zodiac before we move on? Oh,
1: man. Uh, again, guys, like, uh, readily available Seven and Zodiac are both on Netflix as well. If you haven't caught them mm-hmm. or you haven't watched them in a while uh, and you've yep. just watched The Batman, um, you can go check it out and see what we're talking about and hopefully you guys have your own kind of, like, thoughts and opinions about that.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Um. For our final topic, we'll talk about some of the recommendations from this April. What have you seen recently or read or listened Ooh. to that uh, you want to shout out?
1: Yeah, so I just recently caught uh, a couple of days ago the first episode of uh, Spy X Family, which is a new uh, mm. anime this season that is... I've seen it too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of the new ones that have gotten a, uh, the Netflix release, right? That very coveted Netflix release uh, special. Yeah. Uh, I believe I've shouted it out before, but... Uh, watching the first episode, I've gone back and I just like binge through the manga itself. It's been one of my mm-hmm. favorite kind of pickups over, over the last uh, couple of years, uh, and I'm so so excited to see it being brought to life. Uh, it is an amazing kind of like comedy of 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 misfits, uh, mm-hmm. and I will definitely be covering that as one of my top picks. Uh, because one episode in, I'm so I went back, I went read really through. I think I'm like eighty percent through the manga already uh, right. over the last couple of days. Um, so please go check that out first episode is up uh, it, will be, it will be a weekly release on Netflix uh, of course mm-hmm. you anime hits there know where to get your anime fixes so go ahead and do that uh, I'll talk yep. about it in more detail uh, in our upcoming anime corner whenever that will be
0: mm, nice nice uh, it's, is that it or do you have more recommendations
1: uh, for- I, I think that's kind of it for now I haven't really touched on anything else uh, I think it's worth recommending recently that, that okay, we're not cool already on. covering sometime soon, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe it's just called Spy Family, right? The X is yeah. silent, like Hunter Hunter. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, one of the recent releases, uh, that I was really into is a film called Apollo Ten and a Half, Ooh, which is out on Netflix. Yes,
1: I've I've got it's,
0: that. It's uh Richard Linklater's uh latest rotoscope film. Um, not latest, like his follow up to A Scanner and it plays as like part historical memoir, a home video of his um real life experiences growing up in Houston, Texas in the 60s, uh in the late 60s, um, right on the cusp of um, America's first moon landing. Yep. Um it's an amazing little bit of I don't know how to call it, it's almost like anthropology. Like he immerses you into the life and details and pop culture of what it's like to be alive at that point. Mm-hmm. Um especially in a in a small little town where the moon race or the space race was such a big deal. Yeah. Uh you know, everyone worked for NASA. It's it's a nice little slice of life home video type of thing that is kind of mixed with the fantasies of a small boy wondering what if he was also an astronaut. You know? yeah. Um next up I wanna recommend. A movie that is out in cinemas this thursday it's called come on come on mm, um yes. i'll talk we'll talk more about that in our top 10 films of the mid-year uh, come on come on um all due respect to joker is uh, joaquin phoenix's best performance <laughs> i feel yeah he um he plays an npr type radio journalist who travels around america interviewing children about what they think their future will be mm-hmm. um one on one day, he is uh, forced to take care of his nephew, a small little child, who uh, whose mother has to go away to take care of uh, their dad, who is uh, mentally ill. So he takes his the son around, uh, not the son, sorry. He takes the, the nephew around in a cross country journey across America yeah. while he does his interview and gets to know um and gets to know his his uh, nephew like, in in a way that he never has before. Um, a very humane intimate drama that, of, of the of the ilk that we very rarely, rarely see these days. Uh, I'll talk more about that when it comes along. Yep. Um, I want to shout out A Son, uh, which got, you know, big hype back in 2020. I finally watched it. It is uh, this Taiwanese film called A Sun, It's by Chung Wong Hong. Um, one of the most wrenching and emotionally complex cinematics experiences I've ever encountered. Yep. It's a Taiwanese masterpiece that tells the story of two sons. Uh, one is a, st- a top medical school student The other is the raging delinquent in juvenile detention. Uh, One son is obviously a source of pride and the other is a source of shame for their parents, but neither are as black black and white as they seem. It is part family drama, part crime thriller. The movie is pure poetry. It's an astonishing film that questions whether people are capable of change and whether we can change people's impressions of us if we do change yep. um ha- have you ever seen the sun it came out a couple of years uh, ago i
1: have not i have not i've only been reading the stuff that you've been posting up i have already uh i've already bookmarked it for whenever i have time to watch it
0: nice um because of a sun i caught up with chang mong hong's uh, more recent release just released this year in 2022 it's called the falls yes um it is set in taiwan in 2020 it's uh kind of this intimate film that examines the fissures in the relationship between the mother and her daughter as they're quarantining in the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, As financial and personal pressures set in, the mom begins suffering from a nervous breakdown or possibly a psychotic break from reality, in turn forcing the daughter to take care for her mother's deteriorating mental health. Um, Chang Mong Hong is really becoming a must-see filmmaker for me uh, and I really, really loved his quietly profound domestic dramas. Um, there's some of the best around there. Um those are the film recommendations. Um uh, me and Isa will be watching Nick Cage's latest film, uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, in which Nicolas Cage plays himself as a struggling actor who is forced to um remember or delve into past roles uh for a CIA mission. It sounds wild, it sounds funny, and we'll get into that uh soon, I I'm assuming. Um finally, we have some TV recommendations. Atlanta after a four-year absence hiatus, it is back for season three. Finally, it is better than ever. It is hilarious. Um, Barry, a show that we've also covered here on Behold, uh, is back for season three as well next week. Check it out. Better Call Saul is also back for its final season next week, too. So... April is a big month for some of our favorite shows. Uh we'll talk more about other stuff that's coming back, like Undone and Russian Doll, yep. on this upcoming episode on, of um genre equality. But yeah, I, I did want to shout out Atlanta, <laughs> Better Call Saul, and Barry, which yes. are back. Yes, know. um, have have you caught any of our uh, Atlanta? I know Better Call Saul and Barry previously. Uh, I've but have only you seen any?
1: caught the first episode so far. Um, ah,
0: which features no Atlanta yes, characters. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes.
1: Yeah. Um, yes, but excited kind of. Uh, we we talked about like the what the following episodes are. Um, in person mm. recently, uh, so like mm. definitely gonna uh gonna do that. Actually, I I want to yep. shout out, guys. If you're looking for a sad clown show to watch, go watch mm. Baskets instead. Mm. Yeah, wait Yeah, yeah. We've we've covered Baskets before on another episode with Hole. Uh, please go check that out. Uh, I <laughs> have been. Uh, trying to keep up with Moon Knight basically I've uh, dug up the old uh, issues of Moon Knight just to kind of like have a comparison as the episodes are airing week by week
0: Mm. yeah so yeah Um, speaking of you know um, Atlanta and and, uh, Baskets um, Better Things also ends this month Um, it's, it's also its final season also do check it out um I won't delve into that and I would, instead I'll point you to our behold episode where we talk about all three shows yes, at one are, go already yeah. at one go. So yeah, it, it was our effect special. If you scroll down on our timeline, you'll definitely find that one. Um till next time, guys. This has been Hit Zero. I'm Bye bye, sir. Goodbye.